Hey, it's Cameron here. Are you intrigued by how technology like artificial intelligence and cloud computing are affecting geopolitics? Do you care about how governments are using these tools? If so, then I'd recommend checking out Microsoft's Public Sector Future podcast. Head over to aka.ms slash public sector future to find all the episodes or just search for public sector future wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, and welcome to Ones and Twos FP's Economics Podcast. Every week we take a couple data points, use them to explain the world. I'm Cameron Abadi, FP's Deputy Editor, with you in Berlin, Germany. As always, Adam Twos, FP's Economics Columnist and Columbia University Professor, is with us in New York. Hi, Adam. Hi, Cam. So, in the later half of the show, we're going to be talking about the economics of Sweden. So stick around for that. But our first data point is $3.4 billion. That is the annual budget for the United Nations, at least its core operations in New York. The United Nations is very much at the center of the news these days with the war in the Middle East. From the United Nations, where the Secretary General is about to give a news conference, his first news conference, if he takes questions, of course, since the October 7th attacks. Let's listen. Special in New York has resigned and accused the United Nations of failing to address what he calls a textbook case of genocide. The head of the main UN agency helping Palestinians in Gaza says hundreds of truckloads of aid are needed every day rather than the few dozen which have been allowed in so far. The agency has called for fuel to... Conversations around potentially bargaining a ceasefire, but of course its operations extend around the world. And yeah, it's a subject we never actually addressed, the economics of the United Nations, and this seemed as good a time as any. So Adam, it's often said that the United Nations represents the international community and just wanted to sort of ask whether the international community is in fact a real entity and can the United Nations really be claiming to represent it? And if it's not the United Nations, is there someone else or somewhere else we can point to as being the international community? What do you think? It's very tempting to be skeptical here. So I'm going to I'm gonna try and resist the skepticism. And at some basic level, yeah, the UN is real, right? The UN, I mean, I live in New York. The whole world meets here once a year for the UN General Assembly. I mean, it genuinely does. Like, uh, more often than not, the heads of government of a very large slice of the 193 states which are members actually come to one town, one city, and they do in various ways debate and argue and discuss discuss things. And, you know, at a most minimal kind of level, that's a community. Now, it's like, I don't know, think about some giant high school or something like that. Like not people don't know each other or necessarily hang out, but you're part of a you're part of something I think we could reasonably call a, a community. Um, the UN itself is a real organization. It has about 120,000 people on its payroll. And they discuss and document and track practically every facet of human life. And in many cases, are extremely active on the ground doing very important work, notably in the kind of disaster relief um, development space. And they are your last best hope if you're in a truly desperate situation. And one absolutely cannot, must not discount that, I think. Is it functional in the way one might imagine? Clearly not. You know, is it a is it a very well integrated community? Is it a community that gets along very well? No. I quite like in some ways the English 
international relations, English school international relations concept of international society rather than international community. Like community implies too much closeness. Um, international society is closer maybe to the reality of what goes on through structures like this. So that would be my qualified, and imagine a world entirely without it. I think that would be, that would really be quite a radical proposition. You know, at the very least in the UN, there's a forum in which disagreement is enacted. Without it, there would just be, I mean, really, it's a, it's quite a you know striking thing. I mean, for a hundred years since the advent of the League of Nations, we have had a reasonably flat, always of course shot through with hierarchy, but nevertheless global forum in which something like the world is represented. Before that, there was nothing but great power conferences and, of course, in non-governmental meetings of various types beginning in the late 19th century, but no true representation of the world of states and the, the of humanity. So to that extent, I think it we shouldn't underestimate its reality and its force. I mean, conceivably, one could point to, say, the WTO as the location of the international community, or maybe that would actually be the more apt international society that you were uh, referring to. Yes, the WTO, yeah. I mean, the IMF, the World Bank, arguably as well, though they have different you know, membership rules and weighted voting shares and so on. But those are all products of moments of you know, the Bretton Woods institutions are the same moment as the United Nations in its current form and the WTO in its current form, the moment of unipolarity in the 1990s. So they are real reflections of the world as it was constituted at various moments. The only obvious alternative would be something like the G20, and that's a rich and powerful country's club, um, which achieves no greater degree of unification than the UN at this point because of the levels of conflict within that group and at the price of excluding the vast majority of the world's poorest people, not population because China and India are members, but, but poorer countries. So I mentioned that $3 billion figure as uh, the UN's operating budget. I mean, how does that operating budget break down exactly? What exactly is the UN mostly spending its money on? And moreover, how does it get that budget in the first place? Who are the biggest funders and the other, or are there other sources of funding that the UN draws on? So the number that you mentioned, the $3 billion, is for the regular budget, I think, of the UN. And that's what pays for the 10,000 or so staff in New York. That's the core, core, core of the UN. The, the total spend of the UN and its various organizations like the World Food Programme and UNICEF and so on is $50 billion per year. And the funding is brought in through two different mechanisms. One is the so-called assessed portion. And basically, they use gross national income, which is a close cousin of gross domestic product, as the basis, and then weight that by developmental level. And so the largest contributor, more over a fifth of total UN budget comes from the USA because it is it accounts for roughly a fifth of global national income. China is the second largest contributor. The EU, if you added them all up, would be the single biggest group. Uh, of contributors because the EU economy is a, is a block, is really large, and the US contribution is capped by Congress as a certain share of, of total UN contributions. So that's where the, the revenue comes from, and it comes in two portions. One bit is the sort of UN tax, if you like, and then there's a voluntary contribution element. And the voluntary contribution element accounts for what takes the spending up to 50 billion. So there's an assessed element which covers the core UN operations and peacekeeping, which takes you to about 10, 11, 12 billion. And then the rest, which covers World Food Programme, UNICEF, 
UNHCR, all of those, the refugee organizations, that comes in on the voluntary basis from donors. So that adds up to 50 billion. It's just not a lot of money. If we know if we ask the question of like, why is the UN as impotent as it is? Why do we not have a thicker international community where you could just simply say, follow the money? I mean, global GDP is 100 trillion. And we're choosing to contribute 50 billion to the UN. And of course, it doesn't go into a hole in the ground in UN bureaucracy. It's actually quite light. Most of that just flows back out again in peacekeeping operations and various types of global development and relief work. So that's the total that we're somehow managing to mobilize out of a global GDP, which is the thing that's being taxed of 100 trillion. So obviously, much of the UN's job consists of responding to crises, to events that you know, no one could have imagined coming. And I'm curious, in those situations, can the UN borrow money to respond to crises? Or is it really on a, on a fixed budget? I mean, what are its options? Can the UN, say, go into debt to do its job? You'd think so, right? Because as the as the like the supreme international governmental agency backed by all of the governments in the world, all of which are fiat currency entities now, you would think it would be the ultimate borrower, and the opposite is the case, right? It's it doesn't. It's it's apparently its its rules don't allow it to borrow directly. It also has no capital base, so it can't offer anything as collateral. And the last time this was discussed, when the UN went through a really crippling budgetary crisis in the early nineties, the idea was it might borrow from the World Bank, but nothing came of this. So another way in which we sort of render the UN impotent is that not only that we argue, but that we don't provide it with any adequate funding. And then we don't provide it with any mechanism for leverage. It doesn't, it doesn't have any mechanism for actually increasing its financial firepower in a crisis. Is when you dig into this and when you look at the financial, it's a great question. You kind of, you, you realize just how thin the commitment to this, this body is. And still, you know, it does seem to be a kind of like theme of our podcast. And it seems we often sort of talk about how power flows from some sort of material basis, whether it's the wealth of a country or its military capability. And yeah, to the extent that the UN has power, you know, we've sort of talked about how relatively impoverished it is in a material way, but does that mean its power to the extent it has it is moral and symbolic? I mean, is that a kind of legitimate power of its own? Does that maybe make the UN more like the Vatican than, than a nation state in some fundamental way? This is a fascinating question. I mean, it does, when the UN does agree, it does confer massive legitimacy. So I was thinking about, you know, the Kuwait war, Iraq war one, when there was a huge consensus in the UN on the need to expel Saddam Hussein's forces from Kuwait. And compare and contrast that with 2003 and the American led invasion the second time round and the politics of the two events. I mean, the first is barely remembered because it was so consensual, it was so uncontroversial. You know, it was a giant global fundraising effort. Egypt chipped in a division of troops so as to provide an Arab presence. You know, it was a this spectacular kind of global action. And so it does, I think, when it when there is agreement, it confers huge legitimacy. It's also very expert in certain things. So there's an expert, there's a power that comes from a level of expertise. The UN runs the global climate debate for instance, and it's UN agencies and all of the people that contribute to those. It's, that's, you know, people you know, will sort of laugh and say it's all talk, but the talk itself is significant. 
And so, you know, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, things like this are structures created within the UN framework which define what we know um, or we think we know. So really non-trivial sorts of influence. And then in the end, I think the, the final thing to point to is the peacekeeping operations, which again, people sort of sniff at and say, well, you know, they never come to anything or they don't. And it's not true. So if you, if you know, serious social science study of peacekeeping operations since the beginning of the UN suggests that in, I mean, this was a Brookings report, like 60 between somewhere between 60 and two thirds of the operations actually conclude ses- successfully in their own terms, the UN exits. And, you know, we never hear much more again about the crisis ever again. So, you know, in the post Cold War period, there have been successful operations in Namibia, El Salvador, Cambodia, Mozambique, uh, Croatia, Guatemala, Timor, Burundi, Sierra Leone, Cote d'Ivoire, Liberia. And you can kind of like those name checks and you realize, yeah, that was a, you know, huge humanitarian global political crisis. And it's kind of no longer the case. And part of the reason why that is true is that there was a peacekeeping operation which held the ring that prevented massacre, that stabilized the situation, enabled a transition to a more peaceful settlement. Of course, there's been abuse by UN peacekeeping forces. We all know the horror stories of what's gone wrong. And we kind of sniff and say, oh, well, it never adds up to anything. But it's not as though anything else has added up to anything else either. It's not as though any other force, a national government force, for instance, has achieved greater success. The French operations across the Sahel have not been on the whole. They've been successful at moments. There's been moments of, you know, the effective deployment of hard powers in an expeditionary way. But over the long term, that too hasn't worked out. So I think the UN ends up holding the bag for some of the world's most intractable problems. And the very least one can say is that it provides a bare minimum of protection to the civilians fortunate enough to fall within the realm of its peacekeeping operations. And we should, you know, credit where credit is due, to be honest. Yeah, clearly the world has changed. And we can only hope that the UN can uh, continue to be effective in the ways it already is. So we will leave the conversation here for now. But we will be back in a second to talk about Sweden. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. So there's something I've been meaning to get off my chest, and it has to do with uh, Little League. My son is on a uh, Little League baseball team here in Berlin, and the coach is, he's great. He's extremely devoted to the games, the practices. He also expects a lot of devotion from the parents, and I often end up feeling like I'm dropping the ball, uh, you know. Not literally, but, you know, figuratively in terms of getting my son to practice on time, making sure he's prepared for practices, etc. And uh, I've been called out a few times. No, I've been more than a few times. Uh, pretty regularly, I am called out by this coach in, 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 in the form of text messages uh, admonishing me. And I've been meaning to tell the coach that, you know, life is busy and I can't always uh, hold up my end of the bargain. And, 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 and it would be helpful if he would not be so pushy about everything. But I do not say that yet. Instead, I carried around in my chest, and this becomes a stressor. Uh, Maybe you all have stressors of your own kind that you're carrying around, big or small. What we all should know is that if we keep these stressors bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively in all sorts of ways. And that is where therapy comes in. Therapy can be a safe space to get things off your chest. You can figure out uh, how to work through whatever it is that's weighing you down. And that's just skimming the surface of what therapy 
can do. And it isn't just for those who have experienced major trauma. It's for everyone, whether you have a baseball coach in your life you've been meaning to talk to or another loved one. If you are thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It is entirely online. It is designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Visit betterhelp.com slash ones twos today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash ones twos. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Hey, it's Cameron here. Are you intrigued by how technology like artificial intelligence and cloud computing are affecting geopolitics? Do you care about how governments are using these tools? If so, then I've got the podcast for you. Microsoft's Public Sector Future podcast features great guests like Sami Khoury, head of the Canadian Government Centre for Cybersecurity, and Gulsana Mamadieva of the Ministry of Digital Transformation of Ukraine. Each episode explores the lessons of digital transformation from leaders all around the world. Head over to aka.ms slash public sector future to find all the episodes or just search for public sector future wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, we're back to talk about the economics of Sweden. The data point here is 30.3, which is the share earned in the last national election in Sweden by the Social Democrats. The Social Democrats play a special role in Sweden. Sweden famously thought of itself for a long time as one of the world's only socialist countries, at least in Europe, but 30.3 represents a decline for the Social Democrats from its heyday, and sure enough, they did not manage to even enter the current government. Of course, Sweden has been in the news recently for entering NATO, and so yeah, we thought it was time to address Sweden in general, as we sometimes do with countries. So, Adam, as I mentioned, Sweden has a self-styled reputation for socialism, Uh, I mean, what comprises exactly the so-called Swedish model that was developed in the 20th century? Is there something truly distinctive about it, or is this just kind of a good PR message uh, developed by the Social Democrats? Well, it certainly was a good PR message, um, and and, um, Sweden had its pundits, um, perhaps most notably uh, Eva and Gunnar Muddel, um, who were two of the most influential social scientific commentators, not just on Swedish affairs, in fact, but on... US global development, like a truly cosmopolitan um, couple uh, speaking about global social affairs in the 20th century. Um, The Stockholm School of Economics um, is sometimes credited with having anticipated um, various brands of adventurous interventionist economics. So there was, as it were, a kind of an ideological strain there, but there's also just a very powerful reality to it, which is that the Social Democratic Party which is still, with that diminished vote share, the largest party in Sweden, for much of the second two-thirds of the 20th century dominated Swedish politics. So from 1932 to 1976, in 
continuous succession, the Social Democrats were part of the Swedish government and, generally speaking, dominated it. And they had a distinctive vision of the world. I mean, in, in foreign policy, the reason why they now need to join NATO is that part of their foreign policy was that they were neutral and non-aligned. I mean, that served them handsomely in World War One and World War Two. They avoided invasion by the Nazis, unlike Norway and Denmark. Then they were unaligned um, during the Cold War, neutral, and um, have made their way into the Western camp by way of the EU, and now uh, against Turkey's opposition, finally also into, into NATO. At home, they built what's known as the Foxheim or the, the People's Home, the cradle-to-grave welfare state, increasingly inclusive also of women. Um, Sweden already then was building a reputation as the place which has most successfully though even there with reservations achieved parity between men and women in the labor market, at least, and with regard to childcare. And um, since then, inequality in, in Sweden has increased from that, that historic low, but it remains a country with a markedly effective welfare state. It continues to tax, uh, take a larger share of GDP than practically the other, any other rich country in the world, over, over 55%. So to that extent, you can kind of see why this image emerged. It's it's a reality of, of Swedish politics. They're not without reservations. And most recently, with this huge shock of the emergence of a bona fide right-wing party, so not just simply conservative or liberal or centrist, because for a long time, as you can tell from those numbers, the, the Social Democrats didn't you know hegemonize Swedish politics. They didn't have 66%, 70% of the vote. The, at their maximum, they had... 53, 54%. So they generally relied on coalitions and they would run those coalitions with centrists, with liberals, with peasant parties often, because Sweden was initially a very poor European country and industrialized relatively late. But what Sweden hadn't really seen was the emergence of a, you know, of a really nationalist, xenophobic, racist party until the 1980s on a really large scale. And so this is a pretty remarkable turn of events for a country which once upon a time was kind of, you know, bolted on social liberal. Yeah, it does seem that there was a shift beginning in the 1990s when Sweden began to turn away from socialism, at least in its economic affairs and towards liberalism as a guiding principle in its economy to some extent. I mean, did the Swedish model start to fall apart from internal pressure or was this an ideological dismantling of the Swedish model from from the outside? Well, I mean, it's worth saying, I think, that social democracy everywhere was in trouble, really, from the mid-1980s onwards. So what happened in Sweden is not in any way exceptional in that sense. It's just remarkable that it's happening there, too, because of this hegemonic role of the Social Democratic Party in, in that country. Um, so there is a sort of, you could say, there's general ideological currents, but there are also general structural pressures on an economy which was really a highly successful model of industrialization from the interwar period through to the 1980s, with a heavy emphasis on quite classic industries, car building, car making, um, heavy industry up to a point, mechanical engineering, even aircraft manufacturing for, for the local defense establishment. I mean, Sweden was like a miniature industrial economy, um, miniature in a sense, its population is 10 million people. And that model obviously comes under huge pressure in the 1980s. And, and then what transpires is something very dramatic because Sweden has a relatively expansionary money, monetary policy, a relatively generous credit system, and so Sweden had a housing bubble, a really big one, and that burst um, in 1990. And so Sweden goes through what is arguably the first really big real estate financial crisis in the 
Western world um, with full-on banking crises and the need for nationalization of the banks, a bad bank system. In 2008-9, in the Obama White House, there was a period for at least you know a week or two in which the Swedish option was being discussed, which would have meant taking the big American banks into national ownership. And the president himself, Obama, literally said, well, yeah, I know about the advantages of Sweden, but they're just different from us. So the Swedes became a model in the early 1990s, not of social democracy, but so much as how you work out a banking crisis. The, the Social Democrats were in government at the beginning of this, and their efforts to manage the crisis essentially, I think, broke the classic Social Democratic coalition irreversibly in that they became quite alienated from the Swedish trade union movement. And then, broadly speaking, like the British Labour Party, converged with their conservative and liberal competitors on a increasingly market-orientated system, subsequently changed the tax system quite dramatically. So inequality increased quite dramatically from the early 2000s onwards. It's worth also saying, though, that this story of social democratic Sweden was always a story of a majority, but not a huge majority. And there's always been in Sweden, you don't have to spend much time in Stockholm to realize it, a very substantial bourgeoisie, indeed a profoundly wealthy and influential bourgeoisie, which coexisted with social democratic hegemony quite comfortably once taxes were paid. But it didn't take very much, if you like, for that hardcore of Swedish bourgeois interest, notably represented by the giant families of you know, the Swedish capitalism, the Wallenbergs of old and the Rauschings of the new era with Tetra Pak, businesses like that, that, that then, as it were, assert themselves. So there is a kind of Nordic, Scandinavian counter story, which is that they've always been very successful capitalists in a rather globalizing way. And that's, in a sense, what's come back to the fore. That at least is the story that kind of Swedish neoliberals will, will tell you. I do want to shift here a bit to, to turn back to the Sweden Democrats that you mentioned. Obviously, uh, that is the sort of the far right party that has grown over time in Sweden. And, you know, much like far right parties in other countries, they make xenophobic appeals. And this reminded me that Sweden's welfare state is sometimes cited as proof that there's a connection between the homogeneity of a society, you know, the lack of diversity, and its propensity to redistribute wealth. And, you know, correspondingly, as a country then becomes more diverse, it's claimed, it becomes more skeptical of socialist ideals. You know, this seems to be implicit in some of the Sweden Democrat messaging. Uh, but is the research conclusive on this topic, as far as you know, Adam? Yeah, the Swedish emigration immigration story is an absolutely fascinating one because, you know, Sweden in 1900 with a, was a country that was radically homogenous in that something like 0.7% uh, of the population was not Swedish born. And of those, the vast majority were from Norway next door, which was even poorer than Sweden. The story in the period of the last really three decades has changed spectacularly. So by 2010, Something like 14% of the population in Sweden was foreign-born, and that wasn't even the peak year for, for migration. Over the following decade, um, hundreds of thousands of people additionally moved to Sweden. So currently, by Swedish standards, 26% of the population have a foreign background, which means either that they were themselves foreign-born or that they have two parents who were foreign-born. 25%, so a, a quarter of the population so this is a truly dramatic transformation of Swedish society. At some level, 
you know, this makes it perhaps seem plausible to attribute the, the, the disintegration of the welfare state to migration. I think that story doesn't really work because the dramatic shifts in the Swedish welfare state begin earlier and they're driven by essentially internal Swedish logics. But what is clear, I think, is that once mass migration begins and Swedish society begins to change, the politics of the welfare state change, if you like, in retrospect. And there's no question at all that the Sweden Democrats, a nativist xenophobic party that's had a hard time actually excluding Nazis from its ranks, is explicitly motivated by anti-immigrant and specifically anti-Islamic feeling um, on the part of a, well, 20% chunk of Swedish society. The evidence cross-sectionally for this on welfare states and homogeneity is really interesting. I mean, it is broadly speaking true that societies with more homogenous populations, however you measure that, tend to have an easier time arranging the politics of redistribution um, but what you really see is that the societies which are more diverse have a wider span of different outcomes. So if you do have a diverse society, the absolutely critical question is how far the diversity aligns with social inequality. So the American case, right, where the African-American, the black population is disproportionately poor. And so amongst white Americans, the politics of welfare becomes a politics of racial redistribution. And this becomes then an absolute you know, a, a tinderbox, it becomes a, a major mobilizing point for right-wing anti-welfare politics, which is essentially a kind of anti-black politics in disguise. So this is a fairly typical pattern that doesn't prevent rather large-scale redistribution going on within both Sweden and the United States within the welfare services designed specifically to service the privileged group, um, which does a fairly good job of redistributing um, also a kind of middle class and upper middle class welfare state in the forms of various types of tax benefit. So the the evidence on diversity and redistribution is complex in the sense that in general, yes, less diverse societies find it easier to broken, broker redistributive bargains. But what really breaks a redistributive bargain is if inequality and poverty are aligned with with racial, ethnic or religious difference. And in that case, that's really what predicts, as it were, vetoes against redistribution insofar as the redistribution is across that line and not within the privileged group. Interesting. So another distinct aspect of Swedish culture is the so-called law of Jante. This is basically like a code of conduct, an informal one, that suggests Swedes should really try to fit in and rather than express their own individuality or much less their own personal success. So, I mean, what are the economic effects of this cultural norm, I was wondering? I mean, does it prevent inequality or does it rather just help mask it? Yeah. Apparently, this this particular phrase, Jan Talagen, or whatever, however you pronounce it, derives from a fictional book, not by a Swedish author, but by a Norwegian-Danish author who described a, you know, an ideal community. Again, it's a it's a fantasy that came out of the interwar period, out of the night of 1933. Apparently, this book appeared, so it's carried forward into the present day as a kind of reference point of how you know well-organized society ought to function. I mean, the impression one gets is that it is both real in the sense that it anchors basic norms of collective provision and a certain sort of discretion about wealth and income and consumption, 
but also draws a discrete veil over the realities of what in Sweden, like every other capitalist society, is a profoundly unequal wealth distribution. Forget income for a moment or even expenditure, just look at the wealth distribution. And in Sweden, as in virtually everywhere else, control of wealth and, and capital is, is in the hands of a very small group, you know, one, two percent of the population. And and certainly I think there is also a sense that this restraint which may once have prevailed, is gradually breaking down. You know, however this norm functioned, um, you, you wouldn't say right now that, that uh, Stockholm was a place where wealth wasn't ostentatiously de- deployed. Um, I mean, it's, it's cert- it certainly is. It is perhaps not quite Milan or, or I don't know, Park Avenue, but um, I don't think there's any real question about the, the underlying um, distribution of uh, prosperity there. Finally, I did want to ask about how Sweden is an export-led economy, like its near neighbor, Germany. And I wonder, has it always ultimately succeeded by suppressing domestic growth and investment, like Germany sometimes is accused of doing? And if it has been doing that, I mean, how is that reconcilable with its, you know, ostensible socialist ideals and reputation? Yeah, Sweden really is a, an export-oriented economy. I mean, folks may you know know brands like Once Upon a Time, Saab and Volvo, of course, very notable motor car brands. Nowadays, perhaps the most strategic one is Ericsson, which is the you know five G provider of choice. If you're not going to if you're not going to use Huawei Kit for your five G network, the Americans discovered to their embarrassment that America didn't have an alternative to China, but the Scandinavians did. So Nokia used to be big in handsets, it remains a key player, uh, Finnish remains a key player in in the hardware that runs the network, and Ericsson is the other one. So, you know, the Swedes are very much there, and they're also going to be very, very big in the renewable energy space because of the availability of a variety of different un- renewable energy sources. So they are an export country. They're secret, and this is really an important contrast, and it's a kind of basic macroeconomic lesson, is devaluation. Uh, what Sweden does is actually just run a really lax monetary policy. It has quite high inflation quite a lot of the time, and its currency devalues. And it started doing this in the 1970s and has done it pretty consistently. And right now, the Swedish krona is at, at not all-time lows against the euro, but has been sliding for a long time. And, and that's what buffers your competitive advantage. So they avoid some of the pitfalls of that productivist, mechanicalist, export-led model. But, but, but you know, but, but, <laughs> somebody of my disposition would say just by being better economists, like, you know, they, um, they've always been rather good at macroeconomics and they, and they prove it in this technique. It's obviously, it's obviously problematic in the sense you then have to contend with inflationary pressures, which they do have to deal with. Um, but um, that's, the, that's the, the side effect you have to deal with. But nevertheless, it uh, resolves this problem rather neatly. Got it. I mean, is the politics of inflation different there? Do people not freak out at inflation the way that we've seen so many countries have political turmoil in recent years because of inflation? They live with somewhat higher rates, but but um, no, they they have to steer a they have to steer a clever course. So they have a very activist central bank. They're almost Japanese in the the degree to which they've experimented. They had negative interest rates for a while. I mean, they exploit the advantages of being having an independent currency and also being part of the EU. They have the deal that Britain once had and forced war with Brexit, and they they are doubling down on it now with NATO um, and you know binding themselves ever closer. All right, we're going to have to end our conversation on Sweden for now, but 
we will be back to discuss something else we don't know yet what next week Ones and Twos is written and edited by me, Cameron Abadi, along with Adam Twos. It's produced by Claudia Tady, Laura Rossbrow-Tellum, Rob Sachs, and Dan Efron. This show is made possible through the support of foreign policy readers. If you're interested in news and analysis from around the world, consider subscribing. Listeners to Ones and Twos even get a 15% discount. Just go to foreignpolicy.com slash subscribe and use the promo code TWOS at checkout. That's T-O-O-Z-E. And listeners, as always, we love getting your feedback. You can leave voice messages on the Ones and Twos homepage on foreignpolicy.com or email us, podcast at foreignpolicy.com, or you can tweet us. That's at Ones and Twos pod. Thanks very much for listening, and we'll be back in your feed next week. Hi, I'm Annalise Riles, professor of law at Northwestern University. I'm also an anthropologist and the host of a new podcast, Everyday Ambassador, where we give you the small tools that make big change. The idea for this show has been a long time in the making. I actually remember the exact day I started thinking about it. It was March 11th, 2011. I was in Japan conducting research on the financial markets of Tokyo. All of a sudden, I heard a loud rumbling sound and the room started shaking. Everything came crashing off the shelves. I looked out the window and I could see the skyscrapers swaying so much that they looked like they would touch. And then the sirens started going off. A tsunami was on the way. These were the harbingers of one of Japan's worst ever disasters, the meltdown of the Fukushima nuclear power plant. The Japanese government now says two reactors are in partial meltdown and four more are at risk. The meltdown completely turned Japan on its head. I saw hundreds of stunned office workers covered in dust walking down empty train tracks to get from the city to their homes in the suburbs. Electricity was out, internet, cell phones. Supplies flew off the shelves of stores. Geiger counters became an in-demand item, which is never a good thing. Living through a crisis of this magnitude was an inflection point for me. To prevent the next Fukushima or any of the other crises we face today, we'll have to work much more effectively across silos of expertise and national boundaries. And we'll need to harness the wisdom of everyone, from local fishers to nuclear physicists, on how the world really works and what happens when things go awry. Using this approach, I've gone on to spur countless innovations in global policy. And that's what this podcast is all about. Everyday Ambassador peels back the curtains of high-stakes leadership and gives everyone backstage access to the most powerful methods of diplomacy. In each episode, we'll break things down into deceptively simple moves that everyone can make to help build a more peaceful and sustainable world. 
like giving a gift. You want to make it tasteful. You want to make it thoughtful. You thought about the other individual. You thought about what their likes and dislikes are. Or creating a fiction. Taking on a fictional scenario and a role outside of the one that you occupy in your day-to-day -day life allows you to think through what you would like to have done differently. Or just taking the time to have fun. Trying to see this as more so building long-term relationships that are going to be helpful uh, down the line when negotiations are a bit harder, as all negotiations are. Each week, you'll hear surprising stories which reveal the moves you can make to change the status quo, to find ways to connect and move things forward. So join me and become an everyday ambassador. Coming to you this spring on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen.